0: This is a download of Chicago Audio Works, the podcast of the University of Chicago Press. For more information, go to the website www.press.uchicago.edu. Hello, and welcome to Chicago Audio Works, the podcast from the University of Chicago Press. My name is Chris Gondek, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with John Dupre about the new book, Genomes and What to Make of Them, which he co authored with Barry Barnes. John Dupre is the director of the ESRC Center for Genomics and Society and professor of philosophy of science at the University of Exeter. He's the author of several books, including Darwin's Legacy What Evolution Means Today. John Dupre, thanks for taking time to talk to the University of Chicago Press today. My pleasure. Thank you for talking to me. What exactly is a genome?
1: What exactly is a genome? Well, um, I suppose the simple answer to that is the genome is just the, uh, the the set of chromosomes that we find in all our cells. One of the points that we want to, to make in the book is there are actually two very different traditions for describing genomes. And many people are familiar with the the way genomes are presented as a string of four letters c's a's g's and t's and this is a very um has been a very important uh kind of representation of genomes we're actually more interested in or at least we're we're interested in contrasting that with the the sense in which one looks at a very complicated chemical machine so um most fundamentally, a big, a very long string of, of um, DNA, um, but actually uh, in kind of connected with, with other molecules that contribute to its structure and so on. So, we, we're, we are really looking, want to look at it as a material object rather than simply as this kind of information, the string of information that um, is, is one of the most popular ways of representing it.
0: So, what exactly is the relationship between genomes and DNA?
1: Well, um, as I said, DNA. I mean, if if, um, if you if you think of it as simply this string of um, of letters, then that represents DNA, which which consists of these four different molecules, nucleotides, that are arranged in an order that carries information about um, um, protein products that the cell is able to make. Um, if you want to understand what it actually makes, what, which bits of it are active, and so on, then you have to look at it much more in detail as a chemical with with a shape, with relations to other chemicals that that provide some of the structure of the chromosome, uh, and so on. But DNA is is certainly the the chemical that makes up genomes that has been much most carefully studied, and which uh, uh, is is crucial for its its most central kind of informational um, property, which is is providing information for building protein molecules.
0: Um, as I read the book, I started to come across the argument that the advances in genomics have kind of altered, I want to say, traditional taxonomic classifications in biology. Is is that an accurate reading of the book?
1: That's that's correct. Yes. Um, There have been some quite revolutionary changes in in, um, taxonomy uh, as a result of of using genomic techniques. I suppose the the largest scale one is, um, I suppose, still many people are familiar with the five-kingdom classification of life, which we think of life as uh, animals, plants, fungi, um, protists, uh, and uh, used to be called monorobated. People thought of them basically as bacteria. Um, Some quite early genomic work on bacteria discovered that actually there were two quite different types of microbes. And in fact, that a a more kind of accurate picture of of taxonomic diversity distinguished three main uh, branches of of life. Of the bacteria, there were the, uh, the, um, the second group that used to be thought of as bacteria, which were then called the archaea. And then there's a third group called uh, Eukarya, which are where we belong and where four of the five kingdoms that uh, used to be mostly learned in high school are part of. So it it actually sees um, huge diversity of microbial life and the kind of big things we're more familiar with is just in a little corner of the tree. Um, It also, uh, something that I think is very interesting, is i I talk about the tree but actually when what we've started to learn uh, particularly about the bacteria and the archaea is that the way genetic elements move around between these makes it very difficult to sustain the picture of a tree at all because uh, bits of genes can move sideways from one part of the tree to another so really what you have is a net more than a tree and if there's if there's a tree in the old fashioned sense that that we tend to think of it it's perhaps um much you know it really may only apply to the little corner of biology where we live with plants and animals it's so it's pretty revolutionary stuff i think we we and, and of course it's it's having it has major effects on our view of evolution which again we we've always tended to think of as as inheritance passing down from parents to offspring, whereas now we, have, we see all this genetic movement sideways between different kinds of organisms.
0: I was going to say, I mean, given the fact that it is a pretty revolutionary way to look at biology, has it been accepted by a lot of people in either the scientific or the lay communities?
1: Well, I think, I think this, this be, partly because the most revolutionary stuff tends to concern microbes, which I guess most people have, I think, a a fairly simple-minded view of. I mean, they're just things that you want to avoid because you're going to get sick if you run into them. Um, It maybe hasn't really had a major public impact. Among the scientists, um, I think that that it's, it's much more widely accepted by microbiologists than people in other parts of biology. I'm actually involved in a, an international network. We've just got some funding for uh, for a, a we're called reconsidering the tree of life, which has got some very distinguished microbiologists from around the world involved with um, some uh, philosophers, and and we're, we're going to be talking about this in, in that. But but it's still. Um, I think it, it's stuff that is quite accepted among the, the experts in biology, but the implications haven't really spread even uh, throughout biology, uh, certainly not not in the, in the kind of general public consciousness.
0: I think it's fair to say the first part of the book really does look at the hard science behind genomes and makes it accessible to people who might not have a strong scientific background like myself. But I got a sense that a lot of the book deals more with the social uh, repercussions of I guess, the simplification of how genomes and genomic science have been presented. Um, one of them is that, uh, and I see it in a lot of things in the popular press, the way uh, a person's genetic makeup is often used as an explanation for some part of their being. Is this justified, the fact that a person might have certain genes and therefore they're destined to be a certain way?
1: Well, I think um, the short answer is, is generally no. Um, I mean, I, I, of course, well, a, a more complex answer says, well, there is there is um, great diversity in the impact that different genes have, um, but but really, when one's talking about um, you know inescapable effects of having particular genes, one's really talking about quite rare, um, very unpleasant diseases, and these. Unfortunately, if you have a Huntington's uh, gene, um, you're almost certainly going to get very sick, and um, some of these cystic fibrosis, some of these well-known genetic diseases. But on the whole, typically, genes uh, are part of very complex processes that interact not only with other genes, but with the environment. So we're more and more discovering genes that will have a statistical effect, but the effect is, is very much modulated by the environment that you live in. So it may be that if you have a certain kind of diet and a certain set of genes, then you're more likely to get perhaps heart disease. But to suppose that there's a gene there which says you're you know, going to drop down dead on your 62nd birthday, uh, that just, it just doesn't work like that. So so once uh, it's it's really a matter of, of very much more complex, very, very interconnected causal effects. a lot of the time, I think when you, when you read reports for you know genes for aggression, genes for homosexuality, the most you're reading is that what of what of what really underlies that is that given a certain population with a certain set of environmental influences then if you have that gene, your chance of some outcome will be perhaps only quite a small amount higher, but that's a very long way from genes of destiny. And in fact, it's probably true for almost anything we're interested in. There are some genes that will affect your probability of, of turning out that way, but, but these can be very subtle changes in probability and always uh, involve interactions with, with other aspects of, of your life. So, so really, it doesn't tell you very much to have you that you've got one of those genes. And I think it's um, uh, very, very widely misunderstood what, what this, this kind of genetics is going to tell us.
0: We'll be back with the second half of this interview with John Dupre in just a moment. Genomes and What to Make of them by Barry Barnes and John Dupre is published by the University of Chicago Press and is available at bookstores everywhere. News and information about the latest Chicago books can be found at www.press.uchicago.edu. The Press website has excerpts and other online features, and, of course, a secure shopping cart for your orders. The Press blogs about its books at pressblog.uchicago.edu. We're back talking to John Dupre, the co-author, along with Barry Barnes of Genomes and What to Make of Them. You eventually trace back the core of most of these arguments about the use of genomics to kind of an unstated belief of the natural order of life. What did you mean by this?
1: Well, um, I mean, I, one one thing is just if if you look at the arguments that people make, um, this is just as a matter of fact something they tend to say. It seems to be uh, just empirically what people object to when they, you know, they find it appalling to think of, you know, when they see a picture of a of a pig with its snout luminous in the dark. I think it it contravenes nature, and in some sense this is um, this is true. this is not something that you find uh, in the normal course of things. However, I think what what we wanted to say is that that this sense of of natural order is a very difficult one really to make sense of. and what you um, actually come on it with come up with in the end is is human constructions of ways of of organizing the things they see and and the things we're talking about really violate those traditional structures. And of course, a lot of it is, is, has also a theological origin, where people are saying, "Well, what you find in nature is what was created by, um, you know, God, and we have no business messing with that." Uh, so, so there are many ways. But I think "natural" is, is a very, it's a very tricky concept, and it tends to be something. Uh, we impose on what 's come to seem the way things ought to be, um, but to some considerable degree, because've we've, um, we've come, we 've come used to describing that way or conceiving them that way. so we, we build up these these kinds of um, sets of concepts and we, and we 're disturbed when they 're violated. It was a very powerful um, rhetorical device when the kind of op- opponents of, of genetically modified Foods came up with the notion of Frankenfoods because this was, you know, kind of, I guess Frankenstein is is, is the um, kind of um, um, iconic example of, of a kind of violation, a human violation of, of natural boundaries, of putting things together in ways that they shouldn't be. Uh, but, I, but I think, again, it's a very, uh, in a way, a very, very kind of socially constructed set of um, concepts that we're we're always violating because I don't think nature presents an order that um, is just um, just given to us.
0: I want to talk about another rhetorical trope that is out there uh, regarding genomics, and that is designer babies. Uh, there are a lot of people, when they hear that, some people might think, well, that's really great that you can affect the biology of, of unborn children. To some people, it's horrible. Um, can one draw the line between what in your book you refer to as genetic repair versus genetic enhancement?
1: Well, I think, um, I think that, again, the short answer is no, um, because I have to be careful with, with that particular short answer because um, it, it's a kind of— um, it, 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 it's a very standard philosophical point that uh, the fact that you can't draw a sharp boundary doesn't mean that there's no distinction between things that are clearly on one side of it and the other. So, um, so I think it, it, it's it's um, it's not to say that there's absolutely no difference between curing a horrible genetic disease and you know making people who glow in the dark. Uh, but, but I think that if you're ready to press it and say, is there some objective criterion that enables us to distinguish one kind from the other, the answer has to be no, because uh, the, there is in, in, in the naturally occurring biology, there is such diversity and fluidity that we can't say something is just outside what could happen in, in nature. Uh, or, or that there's some, there's some way that you know, the human genome is supposed to be and other ways are somehow um, going outside that and um, violating its integrity. I mean, in some sense, it doesn't have that kind of integrity. So, so I think what we're really down to is, is making decisions that we sort of socially negotiate about what kind of of changes we're comfortable with and what we're not. But I don't think we can, we can appeal to to the biology to tell us which are which are which, which is an enhancement and which are a repair. I think it, it's got to be uh, negotiated in some kind of political way.
0: Finally, uh, there is a lot of press out there coming up about genomics. And for the average individual, it is maybe a bit more abstract than something that affects them on a day-to-day basis. Uh, can you give listeners a sense of where we may be, say, in 10 years? I mean, I obviously you don't have a crystal ball and maybe and I'm not asking for a specific prediction that you know science will be able to do this, but just given the advances that we'll probably be going, I got a sense that in a way it might not be too much of a stretch to think of this in the same term as the dawn of the nuclear age. Is that accurate?
1: i think I think it's the best analogy we have um I think that uh the abilities we have to intervene in life processes are really just beginning and they're growing at a fantastic rate i mean the, the one of the challenges of writing a book like this is uh that you cannot keep up with the science i mean you know, inevitably um you're um some way behind the 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 cutting edge, because it's even even for experts, it's hard to keep up with the rate at which this is going. But I think that um, it is giving us um, extraordinary new powers, and, and powers really to um, to do things to living systems. Uh, ultimately, I think I think very with, with with very little obvious limits to what to what we may be able to do. Perhaps not in 10 years, but. perhaps. Perhaps in 50. I mean, it's a very we're dealing with very complicated things, but certainly it's um, we can anticipate um, a a really extremely powerful technology for, for intervening with life. I think that, you know, for example, we're going to be uh, we're, we're already very close to designing microorganisms to do all kinds of um, uh, tasks for us, like bioremediation and so on. Uh, that's going to uh, people are going to find that very alarming. So I think I think the the um, the parallel with with the nuclear technologies is goes as far as to say this is something that when it started clearly presented some quite awesome um, human potential, human powers and, uh, and abilities to do things, and in a very similar way raised um, extremely. Um, uh, you know, kind of um, pressing fears in people, which to some degree are justified. Uh, I mean, because because they are very powerful techn- they're both very powerful technologies, and we could do things um, that are not at all nice or desirable with them. Uh, so, so it it's that, that, that to that degree, I think the parallel is the most useful one we have uh, at our disposal. Though of course the technologies are very different um, in in you know in sort of fine detail.
0: John Dupre, the co-author, along with Barry Barnes of Genomes and What to Make of Them, thanks for taking time to talk to the Chicago Audio Works today.
1: Thanks very much for talking to me.
0: Thanks for listening to this download from the University of Chicago Press. Additional episodes can be found on iTunes or any podcast aggregator. Your comments and questions are always welcome. The email address for the show is publicity at press.uchicago.edu. Copyright 2008, the University of Chicago, all rights reserved.